0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
1: You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone.
2: Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows
3: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the oh my, oh my, oh my. Uh, here we go again.
4: A uh, shallow 6.5 magnitude earthquake hit off the northeast coast of Japan. Uh, and uh, this is according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The Japan uh, Japan Meteorological Agency issued a 50-centimeter or 18-inch tsunami warning for the Pacific coast of Miyagi Prefecture, which was devastated by the huge earthquake and tsunami that hit back on March 11th. They just cannot catch a break over there. And, of course, our uh, continued um, uh, prayers and uh, best wishes for all of the people of Japan. And that topic will of course, loom large in this program tonight. We'll hear from a, uh, an alternative journalist uh, living and working in Japan in just a few moments. But let me also give you a heads up on what else is coming up on the program. Our media scientist, Nelson Thal, will also check in. Uh, he believes, as do a, a large number of those who toil in this uh, arena, if you will, That what happened in Japan, what happened a month ago in New Zealand, what happened in Haiti over a year ago, these earthquakes were not just tectonic plates shifting. What we're talking about here are man-made events. Attributed perhaps to HARP, something called the Tesla effect. Are we in fact in the midst of a HARP war? If so, how does that happen? Is this technology possible? Who are the perpetrators? What are the motives? We'll discuss that with Nelson Thal. A little later in the show, I'm going to open up the lines and get your feedback on the Conspiracy Show television program, which has been airing across Canada on Vision TV Friday nights at 11 p.m. This will give me a, a rare opportunity to talk to you, to get your feedback, to get your suggestions, tell me about maybe some of your favorite episodes, some of the guests that you'd like, what would you like to see in season two? Last Friday, the 25th, just a few days ago, Let's see, what episodes did we have? We had the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident and then the central banking conspiracy. Coming up next, April 1st, the next Friday night at 11 p.m., vampires. I'll travel to England to interview the Bishop Sean Manchester, allegedly a vampire hunter, Britain's top vampire slayer, if you will. The other gentleman I interviewed in England... Was Neil Arnold, and he'll join us around midnight. We'll uh, catch up and uh, discuss his um, his work in the field of the paranormal. He's one of England's top cryptozoologists, and uh, this evening, before we check in with him, he, actually, as we speak, he's out on a uh, an investigation. Aside from tracking uh, werewolves and vampires and uh, hauntings throughout England, he's also hot on the trail of the elusive black panther, which is said to roam England. There have been sightings of jungle cats, primarily black leopards, throughout the United Kingdom for centuries. And these are not some ghostly specter, these are actual flesh and bone creatures that have been known to take down livestock. Hopefully, they won't injure any, anyone, but it, perhaps it's only a matter of time uh, before someone is attacked in the UK. But imagine Black Panthers, which we usually attribute to. Uh, where are they found normally? In India, places like that, I suppose. But what would they be doing in England? We'll check in with uh, Neil Arnold to talk about uh, Black Panthers and also... Uh, some werewolf sightings. But first, of course, our attention turns to, uh, Japan. And, uh, I thought it best that we actually check in with someone who's, uh, who's working and living over there. And, uh, this gentleman who joins me next, I've had on the program before, he puts together a very interesting, uh, a website. He's the editor. It's called the Corbett report. And, uh, Uh, James Corbett James Corbett is an independent journalist who's been living and working in Japan since 2004 and he's been writing and producing the Corbett report an online multimedia news and information source since 2007 and his forthcoming book reportage essays on the new world order will be available for purchase sometime in 2011 and James Corbett jo- joins me on the line from Japan this evening, where it's actually uh, morning. Uh, James, good morning. How
5: are you? Uh, well, I'm doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances, I suppose. But it's uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me on today.
4: Yes. Uh, first, I was very uh, pleased to hear that, uh, that you are well. Uh, well. We, we uh, contacted you by email. And uh, it's been a while since you've been on the show. First of all, whereabouts in Japan are you situated?
5: I'm on the western side of the main island of Honshu, uh, about halfway between Osaka and Hiroshima. So that's about 400 miles or 700 kilometers to the southwest of the Fukushima nuclear plant. So it's a it's a fair distance away. And uh, over here, we definitely were not directly affected by the earthquake or tsunami. Uh, In fact, the first I ever heard of it was when I was online looking at news and the news reports started to come in and that was the first I knew of it. So um, it was definitely not something that directly affected us over here. But obviously, at this point, we're starting to see all of the uh, the terrible and tragic stories that are coming out of that region, uh, first from the tsunami and now, of course, from the unfolding nuclear crisis.
4: What is the latest on the nuclear crisis? The latest I've heard was that uh, the reactor three, the, uh, the, the, the core may have been breached. Uh, first of all, uh, tell us what you know and then explain what that potentially might mean.
5: Well, as far as I know, yes, it was being reported a couple of days ago that the reactor three, it seems there had been a breach, but um, I haven't heard any updates to that since then. And I'm looking for information on that even as we speak, but I haven't seen anything. Um, The last real update regarding the reactors themselves that I got was that they are now... Uh, injecting fresh fresh water into reactor number two instead of the uh, seawater that they were dumping on because obviously seawater is salt water and the salt uh, water was corroding or at least there was the risk of corroding certain parts within the reactor itself so that when they restart the cooling process, uh, assuming they can get power back up and running and get all the systems functioning, the corrosion might actually interfere with the operation of the coolant making it useless. So they've started injecting fresh water into reactor number two and uh but reactor three as you point out is is one of the the well is the most important one uh, at the moment because reactor number three was running on something called mox fuel which is a mix of plutonium and uranium and plutonium is much, much, much deadlier and more toxic and radioactive than than just the uranium itself, which is what's used as the main fuel source in the other reactors. So it's definitely worrying to to hear about any kind of containment breach with number three. And again, I can't uh, I can't give an exact update as to to what the status of that is. Again, just like you, yourself, all I've heard recently is that they they believe there has been a containment breach but one of the uh, the worrying things that's coming out now is not just from the toxic and radioactive smoke that's coming out of the uh, reactors, but now the the seawater around the Fukushima nuclear plant itself is is apparently very, very much uh, being contaminated by the runoff from the water that they've been dumping in to try to cool these reactors. And there is some sort of outlet that's going directly into the Pacific. And apparently in the area around the nuclear plant, they are now reporting 1,250 times normal levels of radioactivity in that water. And it's only increasing at the moment. In fact, it, it, it did another astronomical spike in the last 24 hours. So there's definitely an active uh, runoff going directly into the ocean. And that's worrying because, of course, that's going to start affecting um, uh, the sea stocks in the area and uh, one would imagine starting to spread with the ocean current around all of the uh, the coastal areas of Japan on the eastern uh, seaboard at any rate. So very, very worrying. And uh, we still don't really know the exact extent of it or, or how this is going to play out, but it's, it's definitely something that we need to keep an eye on.
4: James Corbett is with us from Japan here on The Conspiracy Show AM 740, the editor of The Corbett Report. A lot of confusion uh, uh, out there as to what this all actually means. Now, uh, I, I, we're told that worst case scenario, what's going on at Fukushima will, will, would never ever even approach the the nuclear catastrophe at Chernobyl. But what does what does it what does it mean if you have a nuclear meltdown? What does that actually mean?
5: Well, again, there is a lot of confusion, and I'm still start trying to sort through it for myself because I'm obviously not a nuclear expert. So I'm just trying to get uh, people on the program that that can explain this in in sort of layman's terms for the rest of us. But uh, from what I understand, the the real fear here is not not obviously some some people might think there's some sort of nuclear explosion type of uh, possibility or something. That's really not the issue here. What what this all means is that when the meltdown starts to occur, it, basically we have uncontrolled uh, runaway uh, heating of the, the reactor core, which would eventually start to melt uh, the ingredients inside, so to speak, so that it becomes just a molten uh, pool of radioactive material. And again, I don't know the exact processes by which that works, but obviously one of the effects of that is the the toxic and radioactive substances that uh, that then are released through the the smoke and the um, the things that are escaping from that containment vessel and of course if the inner containment vessel of the the reactor itself gets breached that's when the the all of the the toxic radioactive substances inside start to be uh, let out into the environment directly and that is obviously the main worry worry uh, going on and I've had uh, people like, for example, Dr. Najmadeen Mishkadi of the University of Southern California on my program um, to talk about some of the effects of the radiation that's happening in him hoping to get more, but um, I'm not here trying to put myself forward as an expert on what's going on, but I am trying to collect as much information as possible. And one of the resources that I have up on my site right now is an article, resources related to Fukushima nuclear crisis, where I try to list um, the news agencies that are reporting on this and uh, links to some of the Japanese governmental agencies and other uh, university agencies and others that are reporting on radioactivity levels and trying to measure them in real time. And I'm definitely not trying to be alarmist about any of this. I want to report just uh, absolutely as detailed and technical information as I can to try to keep it. Within the realm of what's really going on there, because I know there is a tendency for some reporting to be alarmist in this regards, and then there's the, also the tendency for governmental agencies to downplay these types of incidents exactly as we saw during Chernobyl. And Three Mile Island and and other crises where it comes out years later that, in fact, things were much worse at the time than they were being reported on. And one example of that was in uh, Chernobyl. There were the reports of the yellow rain leaving puddles of yellowish water on the ground that the children were playing in because they were told that it was just normal uh, pollen-saturated rain and there was nothing uh, wrong with it. Of course, it later turned out that that was a lie and that it was in fact highly radioactive. And the children playing in those puddles obviously were exposed to uh, very dangerous amounts of radiation. And recently we saw some yellow rain being reported in Tokyo just a, a couple of days ago. And and they are reporting it as just pollen. And it's just a natural part of uh, what happens in, in Japan at this time of year. But again, we have to we have to be wondering about the sources of information, and that's why I'm trying to put in a wide spectrum, not just, of course, official government agencies, but trying to find information from alternative sources because, as you and your listeners well know, um, we can't just rely on the government to tell us whether uh, everything is hunky-dory or not.
4: Back with more of my conversation with James Corbett, editor of The Corbett Report, who is joining us from Japan as we continue to delve into the uh, Fukushima nuclear crisis in Japan. Stay with us.
3: When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. James Corbett
4: is with us live in Japan. He's a uh, journalist working and living uh, in that country, of course, which has gone through uh, just an incredible ordeal over the last several weeks. And uh, right now, of course, we're most concerned with the uh, situation at the Fukushima uh, nuclear reactor. Uh, James is editor of the Corbett Report. Uh, James, you've been covering uh, the New World Order for a number of years. And I know that you're, you're hearing the... Uh, uh the rumors about uh whether the the tsunami and the earthquake that struck Japan might have been uh, uh man made that we might be in the midst of some sort of harp war uh, that what was at play here was in fact the Tesla effect. any thoughts on that
5: absolutely well it's uh it was interesting that just before this actually happened, I was looking at, at some of the information about HARP. Uh, it's obviously something that comes up in my research time and again, and I've had. Numerous people write to me and contact me over the years, talking about harp and, and wanting me to dwell more on the issue. And it's certainly something that I'm aware of, and I know that the the effects of harp are, but dimly understood because, of course, so much of the information about harp and and what how it's really uh, acting is still classified and and highly. Um, highly secretive information so it's difficult to get a good handle on but i know there has been a lot of people doing research on harp and its effects and so i was looking into that even just before this earthquake happened but um of course, now since the earthquake has happened, I've received dozens and dozens and dozens of emails from people, basically saying it it was harp, and there's no doubt about it. And so I am currently in the middle of doing research on it and and trying to look at the hard information. I know there are people talking about the um, increased harp activity on March 11th when the earthquake hit, and I I know there is certainly uh, evidence to suggest that harp does have a role to play in in perhaps creating earthquakes, but. I also don't want to go and every time there is a major earthquake immediately default assume that it's Harp. I don't think that serves our our purposes either because there are natural earthquakes and there's no doubt that Japan does live on the ring of fire and in an extremely tectonically volatile area. So to say that every single occurrence Is harp just off the bat without having some some hard information to back that up? I think would be irresponsible. I'm certainly open to the possibility, but I'm also open to the possibility that it's other things. And for example, I know that uh, Dr. Pierce Corbin of uh, Weather Action has been talking about the uh, solar lunar alignment on March 11th that um, the, the extremely strong solar flares that that erupted, I believe, just 24 hours before the earthquake and cu- coupled with a lunar nodal event that basically the moon was disrupting the, uh, the jet streams and the magnetic uh, ionizing radiation from the sun's coronal ejection in just the right way that It created the right conditions for an earthquake. So I know there are other possible explanations for what's going on. And of course, there's always just regular tectonic activity that's happening. So I'm trying to sort through that. And I don't want to be here trying to delimit the debate and say that people shouldn't be researching this. I just would really like to rely on some harder information. And I haven't, to be quite frank, I haven't seen the hard information that says to me this was definitely harp yet. But again, I'm still looking and I'm open to being corrected on that point.
4: Well, you mentioned the coronal uh, ejections, and 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 we're just now beginning to learn about the possible effects of these cosmic rays on not only our climate, and 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 I think many people are now starting to wake up to the fact that uh, that global warming, which they no longer use that term, it's now climate change. Uh, but there is there is a very distinct possibility uh, that what we're seeing play out here, not only in planet Earth, but uh, elsewhere in the solar system where other planets are heating up as well has more to do with the Sun cycle than any man-made activity. Uh, But the possibility that these cosmic rays may potentially be causing earthquakes. I mean, that's a wake up call for everybody because I mean, it's not going to be limited to
5: Japan. Absolutely, absolutely right. And it, it certainly is. It, it does give us pause for thought, doesn't it? To to think that if uh, there are solar uh, radio uh, radiation activity level uh, correlations with earthquakes that are going on, it, it raises the question or the specter of what we could possibly do about that. Um, it's one thing. Obviously, if it's being caused by harp or something, then obviously we could somehow turn off harp. We could get that stop that from happening on some theoretical level. But if it's coming from the sun itself, I mean, there's there's not much we can do about that. So it does raise the uh, the specter of what can be done and whether we should be building well anything, let alone nuclear reactors right along fault lines. And um, I think that's. Definitely something that will play out in the longer term as one of the consequences of this earthquake slash uh, nuclear crisis is the question of how the nuclear industry itself will will react to this, and especially here in Japan. And I'm uh, just reading reports now of how... This, uh, this crisis not, has not only affected the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, but other nuclear plants in Japan, including, for example, a plant, I believe, in Kansai that uh, has, or perhaps around the Kyoto area, that will, is uh, actually being delayed from, from starting up again after the disaster because uh, they don't want to transport uh, nuclear fuel from France for the reactor to Japan. Uh, because there's just not enough transportation infrastructure uh, surviving right now in that area of the country for it to get there. And there are, of course, uh, other uh, cities with nuclear plants very close to um Uh, the actual afflicted areas that are now wondering whether they should uh, proceed with plans to build nuclear uh, power plants in that area. So I think that's going to be a very huge issue. And we've obviously seen some of that debate starting to take place through the media and people lining up on one side or the other of the nuclear power question. But that's just one thing that we have to think about when we're thinking about these vast tectonic uh, uh, seismic events that are happening. And and seem to be occurring with greater frequency and whether that's just a, a question of us being more tuned into what's happening around the planet these days than ever before or whether it's an actual increase in occurrence, I, I'm not sure for myself.
4: James Corbett is an independent journalist living and working in Japan since 2004. Uh, James, the the status of uh, reportage essays on the New World Order, when is that uh, due out?
5: Well, I was definitely hoping to work on that more this month, but obviously with the events that are going on now, unfortunately, that's been set back. But uh, it is uh, written in its rough draft, and I'm just going through this point uh, and uh, basically fine-tuning it and then putting in the, the footnotes and endnotes. So, I, I mean, if I can just sit down and work on it, it'll only take a couple of weeks to really get that finished, and then uh, another couple of months to get it published. But um, after that, um, I can't say exactly what when that's going to be, because right now, obviously, all of my resources are, are in trying to report what's going on in uh, japan right now and that's going to be my focus for the next few weeks at any rate in the website definitely trying to keep up to date with what's happening with the nuclear crisis but also with the tsunami itself and the effects from the tsunami. And I, I, one thing that I'm very much concerned with is uh, trying to direct people to some sort of agency or some sort of organization that people can send donations to, because uh, the Red Cross and the United Way and other agencies have a, a pretty poor t- track record in in major disasters of actually getting funding and, and donations and things directly to the afflicted areas, and tend to skim uh, a lot of it off the top. And I. So I want to see if there are, are local organizations or other uh, places that I can direct people to. At this point, I'm not ready to, to recommend one place or another, but I'm definitely open to suggestions. So if any of your listeners have any suggestions for organizations that they are confident would be donating uh, the actual donations to the afflicted areas, I'd be all ears on that point because I think that's something that we definitely have to keep in our minds as it's now coming out that um, I believe the latest estimate is over 27,000 people missing and dead from this crisis and uh, just the really horrible, horrific images coming out on a daily basis of the ways that uh, Northeastern Japan has been affected by this. It, it's
4: it's a, it's a nightmare, James, and... Um... Uh, my thoughts uh, and uh, the whole crew here on the the conspiracy show, are thoughts uh, with you and uh, uh, friends, acquaintances, colleagues, and 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 uh, everyone over in Japan. Uh, and the the best way to get a hold of you, I'm guessing, is through the website triple dot
5: dot com. That's right. There is a contact form on there and also a a phone number that leads to my Skype account so that uh, people can leave messages for me if they want to contact me that way. And absolutely, I'm open to suggestions not only for uh, charitable organizations, but also for people they think I should be interviewing on this crisis and uh, any information or resources they think I should be posting up that might help people who are in the situation. I'm really open to all sorts of feedback at the moment, and it's very much appreciated. But again, I am only one man, so um, I can only do so much, but I'm I'm definitely going to try to keep on top of things in terms of uh, Japan and hopefully be a resource for people who might even be in Japan, uh, perhaps even listening to your program. So uh, absolutely anything I can do at this point, um, I'm going to try to do.
4: James, uh, so uh, pleased to hear that you are safe and well and uh, wish you continued, uh, um, you know, good health and uh, stay safe. Thank you very much. And you too. James Corbett, investigative journalist, and the website is www.corbettreport, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T, corbettreport.com. Definitely worth the checking out. It's an excellent uh, resource. And when we come back, our media scientist, Nelson Thal, will delve further into this issue of whether or not uh, the earthquake in Japan, elsewhere, if we go back to to Haiti uh, and so forth, whether these could be man-made. Are we in the midst of a harp war. Nelson Thal, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: Welcome back. In just about a half hour's time, I'll open up the phone lines to you and we'll we'll switch gears and take a respite from the discussion about earthquakes and a harp war if that's indeed what we're in the midst of and w- what we'll do at midnight open up the phone lines and uh, allow you uh, to weigh in uh, I'm looking for your your feedback uh, for your your thoughts on the television show the conspiracy show which is airing across Canada Friday nights on Vision TV like to hear about maybe your favorite episodes and uh, perhaps you have some suggestions for future episodes and we are of course willing to travel the globe in search of the truth and follow that uh, wherever it may lead and uh, Recently, of course, we returned from uh, trips to uh, England and Arizona and Los Angeles, Seattle, uh, New York uh, in search of uh, some of the top experts, alternative researchers and thinkers and ex-military people and witnesses uh, to to bring you uh, these um, fascinating stories. And I hope that you're uh, able to uh, to catch an episode here and there of The Conspiracy Show. Again, it airs Friday nights on Vision TV at 11 p.m. Eastern. And Vision TV, of course, uh, in the greater Toronto area is available on Rogers on Channel 60 and across Canada on Bell. I believe it's uh, Channel 261 and on Shaw, uh, 264. But uh, as they say, check local listings. All right. Let us now return uh, to the the topic at, at hand, uh, the earthquake in Japan. And of course, again tonight, another uh, 6.5 magnitude uh, earthquake and tsunami warnings being issued for that same region in Japan that was affected uh, so horrifically back on March 11th. So are we in fact witnessing some sort of geophysical manipulation? Is there such a thing as a human-induced earthquake. This, uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, depending on who you speak to, what we're witnessing is just all, uh, is all natural. Uh, Others, however, see some sort of hyper attenuation of tectonic activity, particularly over the last uh, two decades, if you were to plot a graph. Uh, you 'd notice this pattern of uh, of geometric rise in the in the frequency and intensity uh, of uh, these earthquakes, of course, back in February we had horrible earthquake uh, a horrible earthquake earthquakes in New Zealand uh, over a year ago haiti and now of course the situation in Japan. Let me um draw your attention to uh, On December 10th, back in 1976, the General Assembly of the United Nations approved something called the Convention of the Prohibition of Military or any other hostile use of environmental modification techniques. And they issued a report. Why would they issue a report if there weren't technology in place capable of environmental modifications, perhaps including the ability to induce earthquakes. The New York Times, June 5th, 1977, they described the great earthquake which destroyed Tangshan, China, on July 28, 1976. It killed over 650,000 people. This is what the New York Times had to say just before the first tremor at 342 a.m. the sky lit up like daylight the multi-hued lights mainly white and red were seen up to 200 miles away leaves on many trees were burnt to a crisp and growing vegetables were scorched on one side as if by a fireball now some investigation, investigators uh, believe that these electrical effects that the New York Times just described were associated with electromagnetic plasma and ball lightning and the strange array of flashes which result from Tesla-style technology and/or HARP-like transmissions. Is that what we're seeing playing out in recent weeks in Japan? Let's bring aboard our media scientist friend Nelson Thal. Hello, Nelson. How are you?
6: Very good, Richard. How are you? Well, thanks. How's thank it going?
4: You. Well, we're uh, we're still all, of course, all of us on tenderhooks uh, with the situation in Japan. Another six point five uh, earthquake and uh, tsunami warning. Uh, let me ask you just uh, uh, straight straight away: Do you think that we are in we are in fact witnessing some? man-made human-induced earthquake
6: of course we've been talking about it for three decades um, Richard the mass media is covering up the ongoing tectonic warfare and of course for a long time we've been talking and you've talked on your show also about the psychotectronic warfare that we're fighting and it's very interesting to watch it go on
4: well, what has to ask then? What what evidence? I mean, I, I mentioned this this uh, UN uh, report, uh, the General Assembly UN um, their convention for the prohibition of military and or hostile use of environmental modification techniques. But how do we know that they were actually referring to uh, the ability to induce earthquakes?
6: Uh, you know, the um, the ongoing asymmetric war was described best. You know, Richard, we always stand on the shoulders of John F. Kennedy and Marshall McLuhan, and we're also standing on the shoulders of Secretary of Defense William Cohen, who in 1997, at a conference on WMD held in Georgia under the auspices of Senator Sam Nunn, he exposed what was really going on. And I'll read it to you. Quote, this is Secretary of Defense William Cohen in 1997, quote, Other terrorists are engaging even in an ecotype of terrorism, whereby they can alter the climate, set off earthquakes, volcanoes remotely through the use of electromagnetic waves. So there are plenty of ingenious minds out there that are at work finding ways in which they can wreck terror upon other nations. It's real, and that's the reason why we have to intensify our efforts. And that's why this is so important. And we're probably seeing here an ongoing tectonic warfare. It's not always TARP. A lot of times, as Dr. Beter exposed, and others, they use cobalt-60 bombs placed by submarines on fault lines to trigger these things. So the people behind the scenes have done a lot to come out in the open and talk about it. And we're just picking up and connecting those dots.
4: Now, how does one then differentiate between... A natural occurring earthquake, and and uh, earthquakes, as I recently learned uh, from my conversation with astrophysicist creation scientist Dr. Hugh Ross, earthquakes are an essential part of revitalizing the planet and and uh, creating uh, nutrients. In fact, life on this planet wouldn't occur were it not for certain tectonic activity and earthquakes. And of course, Japan is situated on the you know what they call the Ring of Fire. Uh, if if an earthquake were to be naturally occurring, you know one would expect it would take place in, a, in japan so uh, let's uh, so we, we don't necessarily rule out the possibility now
6: Richard, let's not kid ourselves. We got prerequisites uh we had an, uh, we had a an earthquake on the island of Hispanola, and for some reason it only hit the uh, the, the town the nation of haiti, and the Dominican Republic was spared. Come on, yeah. rich. No, they were I, spared. I oh, agree, I agree. Hispanola was hit, and they hit one part of the island, and Dominican Republic's untouched by an earthquake. I mean, there you no, can tell that ain't an earthquake, it's a harpaquake.
4: No, I, I understand, but my, my, my question was, how do you then differentiate between what are in fact, because you can't, you can't deny that there are natural earthquakes. Uh, yeah, but, well, for
6: sure there's natural earthquakes. Absolutely. So how do you differentiate? But there's, okay, the, the, you know, what, the, there were two papers given by a guy named E.T. Whitaker in 1903 and 4, detailing the beginning of the development of a secret weapon science called energetics, which led to the development of powerful scalar interferometers now possessed secretly by at least 10 nations worldwide and even the Japanese Yakuza. The people who were involved in this thing are there, and you can talk to them, if you know what I mean. I mean, Colonel right. Tom Bearden wrote a whole book called Oblivion about it. So the insiders are talking, and as we do it, as I do on my show, Shock Talk at the bloominsteel.com the prerequisite is an understanding that uh, these things are real, and uh, you can uh, connect the dots between the people who are involved in it.
4: So, uh, now my understanding uh, uh, regarding Dr. Peter Beter was ostensibly that the, these cobalt bombs that were placed around the Philippines and elsewhere, uh, the idea for placing them there was to re- relieve certain stresses that were building up in the areas and perhaps even prevent more damaging earthquakes from, from taking place, if you know what I mean. So, tell me more then about um, you know who who might have placed these cobalt bombs uh, beneath the earth's surface. You know why they were why they were placed there. Um, what do we know? About uh,
6: the NWO strategy really is to um, bleed the U.S. dragon, and of course they use the Japanese mafia, yakuza, and uh, that's what gave rise to the to the dispute between Japan and the the island. Kirill in, uh, in, in between Russia and Japan because the Russians have this technology, and they can create shields to protect themselves from being hit. And shields can go ac- across a country to protect it from this type of attack, and then it can be removed. And if it's removed, you can tell when the shields are removed as to whether it's a earthquake Nelson? or okay. an earthquake.
4: Yeah, you, you, you just cut out there for a second, uh, Nelson. Okay. You, can, uh, you
6: can tell by studying when the shields are removed, like on Star Wars. Right. When they drop the shields, and it happens when the shields happen to be dropped, you know it isn't coincidentally an earthquake. Just like 9 11, they drop the shields in order to let the jets come in. Looked the other, NORAD looked the other way, right, Rich? So you watch for when they drop. That's what they did, and the inferometers show them dropping the shields.
4: All right, listen, well, um, why don't we take a time out, come back. We can also invite uh, callers uh, into the discussion. Let me ask you out there listening, do you think that what we are witnessing here in Japan, earlier in New Zealand, uh, going back further uh, to, uh, to the situation in Haiti, are these, in fact, human induced earthquakes are we in the midst of a harp war is the tesla effect has the tesla effect been unleashed on the these poor souls in, in japan 416-360-0740 and total free from just about anywhere 866 740
3: When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back.
4: Just a reminder,
3: coming up just after
4: midnight... Your chance uh, to uh, weigh in your thoughts, feelings about the Conspiracy yeah. Show uh, television program airing across Canada on Vision TV will uh, give you a chance uh, to weigh in on that. Uh, perhaps you can talk about your, uh, your favorite episode, or you may have suggestions for uh, subject stories you'd like covered in Season 2. And, of course, it airs Friday nights at 11 p.m. Coming up on April 1st, our 13th episode will air and we'll uh, discuss vampires. All right, uh, back to um, uh, my discussion with Nelson Thal about the possibility what we are witnessing in Japan and elsewhere are in fact human-engineered earthquakes. Yeah. And Nelson, I, um, I want to get back to um, that New York Times story from 1977. Sure. We have these descriptions of... Um, these multi-hued lights seen in the sky, mainly yeah. white and red. Um, uh, I mean, this—it's almost a, an aurora borealis type uh, situation. I mean, I'm guessing that this is not a natural phenomenon to see such lights before or during a natural earthquake. Uh, what, what do you what do you hear about the the uh, the presence of these strange? The strange luminescence in the sky just prior to, in some cases, during an earthquake.
6: Yeah, of course, it's uh, known. The harp clouds are affected by the energetics and the electromagnetic waves that are propagated by it.
4: Yeah, uh, I, I go back to um, there was a the, the Chile, of course, is another uh, area that's prone to uh, to earthquakes. And uh, last year, two thousand and ten. uh february i think they had um, a terrible earthquake uh and again i'm referring here to msnbc and cnn interviews with people again witnesses yeah. saw strange lights in the sky just before yeah. and during the chile earthquake and just as documented before the 2004 tsunami the 2008 china quake and the 2010 haiti quake uh, there's also video evidence many witnesses who saw again aurora borealis type lights in the sky and um, it, it's just very odd but you're saying that this is uh, high
6: power is a- technology very very high power technology used to drive electromagnetic waves that are like por- particle web waves particle beams and they can be tremendously destructive uh, they can be shot from the sky down to in front of a ship Causing a rogue wave, and whenever you see a rogue wave, you pretty, and, and these inferometers go off the scale, we know that they're fighting these battles using this high tech equipment. So, in the case high of. High power, G- too. They use tremendous, huge billions of watts of gigahertz, huge amounts of power. Um, Bearden said they could uh, blast sand traps off the moons of Saturn. So now, it's big, big power.
4: Are we talking here uh, when, when we're referring to Japan? Are we talking about these fusion and fission bombs that the Russians supposedly placed in these deep trenches in the ocean, or are we talking about Harp?
6: Well, sometimes they they, they discovered that they could trigger it using using cobalt sixty bombs along the fault lines. So they didn't have at that time. They didn't use Harp.
4: If that were the case, wouldn't something like that—the detonation of these cobalt bombs—wouldn't that show up on a? Uh,
6: well, you know what? Prior to scalar. the end of two thousand and four, the Yakuza registered. Um, it's reported one of their more of its large scalar inferometers on one of the world's largest supervolcanoes, the caldera beneath Yellowstone National Park, and it started to heat up and smoke. And there were pic- stories, but they, the media the media tried to um, curtail and blackball the stories Pam Schufer a reporter of ours showed up on the scene and actually found that they were holding people back a mile or more from the caldera cuz it started to smoke in 2004 so they already started to heat it up using this equipment
4: All right uh, let's so there's go lots to of proof uh, the ongoing use of it Let's go to the phones, Nelson, and we'll welcome Joshua from Buffalo, New York. Good evening, Joshua. Welcome to The Conspiracy Thank Show.
7: Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, All right. I just want to say that I'm lucky enough to be in Buffalo, New York, uh, obviously to catch your show. So I'm close enough to, uh, to, to actually catch it every Friday. But uh, my, my question, uh, actually more of a comment, uh, comes from your question earlier, uh, posed where how do we distinguish a, a man-made earthquake to a natural disaster earthquake? Now, for me, like I, I think the easiest way to define one thing from another is to be able to know for certain what one thing is and to be able to define what one thing is, and that one thing would be a natural disaster such as the earthquake. Now, we don't know how to predict it. We don't know uh, necessarily what what triggers the, the natural earthquakes so be able, to be able to say, like, uh, what's the difference between one and another or how do we tell the difference. We need to know for certain what one is, and I think that's... That's the hardest thing to, to to have a conspiracy on unless you know for certain what you're actually looking at, what evidence there is. I, I know it sounds it sounds ridiculous, but for me, that's, that's what it boils down to. Yes, you have to have when,
4: something to measure it against. Now, I mean, absolutely. I think we know what, a, what, a, what an earthquake is. The question is, uh, I mean, are there fingerprints? I mean, if it's an artificial earthquake, uh, there must be some... Fingerprint. Maybe it is the strange luminescence seen in the sky uh, just prior to or during an earthquake. Uh, perhaps yes. there is sort of unrelated seismic activity that would be the signature of an underground nuclear detonation.
7: Yes, uh, sir. What, For me, the, the question that I, the, the thing that I always had that was just odd about it entirely is that we have so much knowledge and so many scientists and so many so much technology devoted to predicting. Certain outcomes, of, like a tornado. When do we know when a tornado is going to happen? We have underground uh, measurements for tsunamis. Unfortunately, for Japan, it, I mean that we utilize that for for uh, obviously for California, but it didn't it didn't work out for Japan uh, in quick enough time. But we we don't we don't devote ourselves to measuring earthquakes, and that's that's what always struck me as weird about it is that we've never heard any evidence of anybody trying to figure out. What, what, are the, what are the warning signs or, or what, what to be expected with an earthquake? It's like there's no knowledge that can possibly present it. For, for me, that just seems odd. If we devoted all of our time to figuring out how a tornado, how an er, a hurricane, how a tsunami works, why haven't we heard anything about an earthquake?
4: Joshua, thanks for the call. Good to hear from Buffalo. Let's uh, say hello to Arthur in Toronto. Arthur, welcome to The Conspiracy Show at AM
8: 740. All right. uh, of course, it's a big subject, but- most people don't want to believe in it, or they don't know what to confuse, of course. But you go to the Bible, and it's a part of the Bible's messages that when
6: Scripture says, I forget where it is, that Christ says, Woe to the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great anger, knowing you a short time. So a lot of it is not human induced, but it's slightly done by the devil to confuse people when Christ says, uh, when he was on earth,
8: that there will be earthquakes, and wars, and whatever, in various places before the end of this system comes.
4: Well, uh, but I don't think the Bible is uh, necessarily ruling out that the increase in tectonic activity uh, could be man-made or human-induced. It's simply saying that there will be an increase in earthquakes, uh, so who, you know that doesn't necessarily rule out uh, that they are uh, human engineered. No, and uh, one could certainly argue, I suppose, from a, uh, um, uh, a religious uh, perspective, that those perpetrators, if there are in fact human perpetrators of these earthquakes, um, may in fact be in in league or acting in concert with the devil. Nelson, did you want to weigh in on that?
6: Well, it's it's. It's a little bit away from what we were talking about with the high-tech equipment, but I can—I I would say, personally, that um, the prince of the power of the air, I find, um, could do it supernaturally, but I think that he wants to copy the Lord who does things and works his plan through human agents. So I think he, 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 he tries to copy him. He, he thinks he's better, of course. He's puffed up. He thinks he's better. He wants his throne. So he would do it the same way because he wouldn't want uh, anybody to say, "Oh, you couldn't do. You had to do it supernaturally. You couldn't do it using human beings." Do you know what I mean?
4: Indeed, indeed. Arthur in Toronto, thank you for the call.
6: Uh, Nelson, that's State a long point. way from what we were talking about, Rich. Which is the, this high well, tech. Well, I don't know. Equipment. Maybe
4: it's not so so far removed, uh, Nelson. Maybe not. it's just coming at it from a from a different angle. Yeah, uh, you know, I I, yeah, I, n- you're right. I know you 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 believe, and I and I believe also. I mean, the, the, this is all uh, the underpinning for all of this is uh, you know Scripture, and uh, uh, there's nothing that goes on exactly. uh, on Earth that isn't under the watchful eye uh, of uh, of uh, of God. So I think it is in in a way directly yes, for related. Sure, for sure. Let's um, uh, come back and uh, discuss further, Nelson Thal. Is with us media scientist, assassination researcher, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, and a producer of the popular web television based show Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. Do you believe that the earthquake in Japan was human engineered? 416 360 0740 740 4740
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: Just dusted off an old uh, edition of Specula magazine from 1978, January 1978, and they ran an article describing an incredibly profound phenomenon that could be produced within the earth by what is called the Tesla effect, of course, Nikola Tesla, perhaps the greatest scientist who ever lived. And according to the article, electromagnetic signals of certain frequencies can be transmitted through the Earth to form standing waves in the Earth itself. And in certain cases, coherence to the standing wave can be induced within a fraction of the vast surging electromagnetic current of the Earth itself, feeding into and augmenting The induced standing wave. What does all this mean? Well, much more energy is now present in the standing wave than the amount being fed in from the Earth's surface. Uh, So what this means, I suppose, is that you can produce earthquakes or they can be induced at a distance that's a 1978 Specula magazine. Now, it's all very technical. It's beyond my pay scale. Uh, but, I mean, I mentioned this article. I mentioned the UN General Assembly back in 1976 drafting a convention prohibiting the use of env- environmental modification techniques. You have uh, Dr. Peter Beter, as Nelson Thal detailed moments ago that the Russians had placed fission fusion super bombs in certain deep undersea trenches around the Philippines. You start to connect the dots and suddenly the idea that we are in fact witnessing human-induced earthquakes isn't so fanciful, isn't so far-fetched. All right, let's go back to the phones and uh let's see who do we have Lance is checking in from the great city of Knoxville, Tennessee Lance welcome to the conspiracy show
8: Thank you uh, what I've, uh, I think you almost uh told me what I want to know I want to know what harp is all about
4: well, it's a it's is essentially a vast array of radio transmitters or antennae up in the copper valley uh which is a remote area of alaska Uh, and it's uh it stands for high frequency auroral research project it's a joint project between i believe the u.s navy uh darpa and uh, certain uh, educational, post-secondary educational institutions. I'm not sure if uh, MIT is involved, but uh, some some organization like that. Ostensibly, they're conducting tests on the ionosphere. They're they're superheating the ionosphere, bl- blasting it with uh, I guess uh, ELF, uh, extremely low frequency, uh, from these radio uh, transmitters. And uh, some say that this is. Uh, Uh, This could be used to modify the weather, the direction of the jet stream. It could be even used uh, for mind control purposes. And other people believe uh, that uh, Harp could be used to uh, induce uh, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and yes, in fact, earthquakes. Uh, Rich? Yes.
6: Uh, Just for the caller, just to distill it down to... Uh, another form and level. Basically, it's taking very much your microwave oven, which is focusing electromagnetics at the size of a dish, and now what they're doing is they're focusing it even very smaller to a very, very, very small point and increasing the power. And so not only does it heat up your food, now it can heat up a jet airplane, which will cause it to explode, or a ship at sea. And
4: and I should mention, uh, I mean, I I gave the example of uh, the the harp installation uh, in Alaska, uh, but there's some speculation that there may be as many as uh, uh, four, six, uh, maybe as many as ten other type uh, harp installations around the world. Of course, the best known is in Alaska, and there is another one uh, in Norway.
6: And the Uh, Russians have their buzzsaw. And by the way, ham operators picked up the research and development being done because you couldn't research and develop this weapon with huge power and not have it uh, discovered. And in the 70s, and uh, I was with a group of ham radio operators. We started to hear the power, the click, 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 click from, from around the world that it was coming out of Russia. Ham radio operators knew that.
4: I mentioned Nelson the, um, the harp installation in Norway, and then it just suddenly dawned on me. Remember the Norway spiral? Is that was exactly. that the, the same sort of effect that people were reporting in, in, in China, in, in, in Chile, uh, uh, this strange luminescence in the sky prior to an earthquake? That seems to be the harp signature, doesn't it?
6: And, of course, let's not forget uh, the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret society, so says Marshall McLuhan.
4: All right. And uh, that includes let's,
6: the sciences.
4: All right. Let's say hello to Carol in Toronto. Carol, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello. Hi. You're on the air. Go ahead.
9: Um, I wanted to um, say that this whole conversation just brings to mind the uh, replay of Atlantis and and how... The insane technology, from what I've read about it, got out of control there and um, with with some sort of laser-powered beams. And this whole conversation strikes me. I can't even take in um, or comprehend the insanity of this technology. And to your guest, I, I would like to know if um, the guest thinks or can comment or knows anyone who are these people the soulless operators behind the technology does do, does your guest anticipate that one day they they might come to their senses and be whistleblowers
4: Nelson uh, are you with us
6: That's a that's a good question um, you know, Colonel Tom Bearden, uh, Duncan Cameron, the Montauk fellows. There's been a movie about it, um, the Philadelphia Experiment, um, and of course the the, uh, the the killer satellites and the scalar. Cannons that are available. Um, there's been movies done about them. Uh, as Steven Seagal did a movie, yeah. um, Dark Territory, which which showed this technology. So um, I think that that people involved with it look for ways to talk about it in a way in which they don't um, uh, get themselves into physical problems. Right, Richard? Uh,
4: yes, as you've pointed out to, to me, Nelson, and I, I think this. Perhaps comes from Marshall McLuhan, and that is that we lie to ourselves through television, and we tell ourselves the truth through film. Is that what you're getting at?
6: Yes, exactly.
4: And uh, thank you for the call, uh, Carol. Thank you,
9: Richard, um, uh, Sarah, but, 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 I think uh, you, your show is brilliant tonight, and your guest is brilliant tonight. And I, and I say thank you for your awareness to both of you, and to bring this subject forward. Thank you.
4: Thank you for your kind uh, comments, Carol. Uh, the perpetrators, though, you, you mentioned uh, the, the Japanese mafia, you mentioned the Russians. Who, who else might have this technology? I mean, has it fallen into private hands? Is it, in fact, uh, uh, you know, in the hands of, uh, of uh, you know, crime syndicates and uh, uh, individuals rather than nation states?
6: Uh, it, exactly, Richard. Unfortunately, it's fallen into the hands, as William Cohen said, of eco-terrorists meaning organizations like Blackwater who are for hire and will use the technology um, for, uh, and let it be used for whoever wants to hire them. There's what would 10 it, different what would nations then? have this technology, and a, a, a drug cartel in Colombia have it and access to it. They lease it. Uh, and Bearden talks about the whole situation. His book, Oblivion, I recommend to anybody who wants to know more about what's going on. It's just a terrific read from a guy who is on the inside. Explain
4: to me then the, the motivation for, for going after Japan. I mean, this is a country whose economy has been on the skids for 20 years.
6: I'd say that, remember, that what what I can talk about and what Bearden talks about is that um, the, this technology has the power to take out oil rigs, Richard. See, so, see? Okay,
4: you're hearkening back, of course, to uh, the BP oil uh, disaster in the Gulf right. of Mexico. Okay, so... Uh, would so are you suggesting then that this might be payback that the japanese mafia perhaps were behind the bp oil disaster and this is payback
6: it certainly am interesting it's, it's, interesting it's not coincidental that uh, i mean uh, bearden talks about they have the uh, the yakuza have these portable small sports util- utility vehicle units and they have uh, they can um, they have the power to be, to be uh uh to um I can take out refineries, nuclear power plants, hydrocarbon fuel power plants, oil fields and Gulf, oil rigs. So well, you if, know, if, obviously if, this is this Gulf thing was part of a warfare. It wasn't in just obviously.
4: So yeah, we're witnessing
6: it's warfare. It gang, like gangland style. What, rival gangs. Rival
4: it's, it's, it's gangs going on. There's a world
6: war going on between rival gangs around the world, mafias as well as nation states, and we use shields to protect ourselves from them. But um, accidents happen. But it's an ongoing asymmetric war, says Secretary of Defense Cohen, and they're using energetic weapons and bioedge energetic weapons and psychotronics and tectonic weapons and... You know, it's the the media cover it up, and the average guy hasn't got time to make himself aware of it. But you know, the stuff, cold fusion, etc.
4: What it's it, it sounds like a departure, but it's really related. If we're talking about harp and uh, environmental, uh, you know, modification techniques and weaponry, what percentage of the weather
6: do you think is in fact manufactured? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, And it's really, really hard to answer truthfully or come up with any number. But um, uh, they do have uh, immense power at their disposal, and they can can create these hurricanes. So aberrations like hurricanes, the overall weather flow of the pattern, they can't – I mean, they can alter the jet stream, but they can't stop the jet stream. But they can use this to change – the direction of the jet stream and move it around but they can't stop the jet stream so they've got us it's very powerful to move it around but they don't have the power to actually stop it
4: all right uh, Nelson before we let you go what's coming up on uh, shock talk next
6: well you know with what's happening it's changing quickly day by day we set the uh, topic in a week in advance and then Something comes along, but we're going to talk more about the tectonic weaponry and the ongoing asymmetric wars. And we're going to get into the psychotronics. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, the pilots that uh, the, the psychotronic um, equipment was able to get them to just take them over and fly into buildings. It's the, like Manchurian warfare. You know, be pilots who are Manchurian candidates and the high tech mind control going on. Uh, Captain Button, Captain Hess, things like that. It's going to be fun, and um, we—it's it, fun at com. Rich, thanks for the for for um, the plug.
4: No, well, Nelson, and before I let you go, I, I failed to mention uh, because we're about to open the lines and get to, get to listener feedback on the TV show, and we really need to mention that uh, you are uh, the researcher. Uh, on the program, and uh, yeah. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for all the, the great work you did in season one. It was an absolute blast, and uh, couldn 't have done it without you
6: well it 's awfully kind of you, and uh, i couldn 't have done it without you <laughs> and um, uh, it 's researching the material is one thing, but having some uh, the ability to distill it and, and communicate it is a great talent that you 've got, and I thank you. go for it.
4: All right, thank you, my friend. Nelson Thal, and uh, you can listen to the um, the webcast uh, of Shock Talk, and uh, the website there is bloomandsteel.com, www.bloom, B-L-O-O-M, and steel, S-T-E-E-L-E, bloomandsteel.com. All right, Nelson, we'll talk soon.
6: Thanks, Richard. Good All luck. Right, Good night. For now.
4: Okay, let's open up the lines. Dan the man, and uh, when we come back... What do you think of the TV show so far? The Conspiracy Show, airing on Vision Television across Canada, Friday nights at 11. Phone lines available to you, 416-360-0740. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 866-744-740. Favorite episodes? What would you like to see in Season 2? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett.
3: show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back.
4: It's been a long, strange journey. Going back to, well, 2009, certainly the most recent genesis my attempt to get the uh, conspiracy show uh, on television. Uh, but in truth, in fact, you know, the other day I was going through a, a file cabinet and I uh, discovered an old proposal uh, that I had put together uh, to, to, to put a TV program like the one presently airing Friday nights at 11 on Vision TV uh, that dated back to 1997. It was a proposal I put together. And uh, this was actually even before I had a radio show but it was a subject uh, that fascinated me, the whole conspiracy paranormal arena. And uh, I put this proposal together for a, uh, a Toronto production company. And the, the, the proposed title of the show was the big picture. And, uh, needless to say, it, it didn't go anywhere. I think I had a couple of lunch meetings, um, with some producers, the timing, quite frankly, just wasn't right. Uh, But anyway, I bring that up just to point out that the conspiracy show now seen on television is actually been in the making for 14 years. Uh, But we sort of began in earnest uh, again two years ago. And uh, that's typical of how long it takes a TV show to get on the air from sort of conception, uh, producing a pilot. Uh, selling it, you know, finding a broadcaster, funding and all of that stuff, the legal, the accounting, uh, it's, I tell you, it's an entirely, uh, um, a different world than I'm accustomed to, uh, being primarily a creature of radio. Uh, but, uh, it's up, it's running. And, uh, we're just about to air episode 13. And, uh, so we'll turn over the phone lines to you in just a minute. And, uh, I- I'd like to, uh, sort of sound the, uh, uh, test the waters, actually, and see uh, what you think of the show, if you've had occasion to watch it. Again, Friday nights in Toronto on Rogers, it's Channel 60. And uh, again, check local listings throughout the country where you can pick up vision by your, uh, from your local cable provider. I do know that it's available on, uh, on Bell, uh, Bell TV and also Shaw. And uh, I think it's Channels 261 and 264 don't quote me on that uh... just a few moments uh... from now we will check in with neil arnold uh... who's in kent england and uh... i had occasion to meet neil back in february when the conspiracy show crew went over to uh, england for about a week uh, filming episodes for the tv show and uh... neil actually will be f- will be featured in our upcoming episode on vampires uh... and then also Um, at some point we're uh, we're looking to do an episode on werewolves and and Neil has actually been tracking werewolf sightings in the UK. I know that sounds uh, absolutely bizarre uh, but there have been in fact um, a good number of, 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 of people who have seen or claim to have seen what seems to be some sort of bipedal anthropomorphic wolf man beast with you know, fangs, claws, matted fur, beady, glowing red eyes in the works. So he'll, he'll tell us about that uh, in just a few moments. Again, the phone numbers, if you'd like to weigh in on the TV show with your thoughts, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere, Thunder Bay of the Carolinas, 866 740 All right, we'll uh, take a time out when we come back. Hopefully, we'll get to your calls. and, And then again, we'll also await the arrival of paranormal researcher, folklore researcher, Neil Arnold, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: And Just a reminder, next week on the program, that would be Sunday, April the 3rd, Dr. Judy Wood. She'll be uh, with me for the first hour. And she'll discuss her... Where did the towers go? Evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11. This is very controversial, but she says that there, is, there are fingerprints. There is a signature here. When we're talking about the uh, destruction of the uh, Twin Towers and Building 7 on 9-11, it has all of the signature of a directed energy type weapon. Dr. Judy Wood Uh, will be with me to discuss that. And in the second hour of the program, uh, Joanne Krobot, who is um, one of Toronto's preeminent remote viewers, will be with me. And we're going to conduct a remote viewing experiment live on the air and I will be the subject. Uh, Essentially what's going to happen is she's going to come in before the program, uh, probably around 10 p.m. and uh, very quickly run me through sort of the more rudimentary aspects of remote viewing or coordinate remote viewing. And uh, then, live on the air beginning at midnight, she will have a, a secret uh, target in mind. She'll uh, write it down on a piece of paper, seal it in an envelope, place it on the desk, and, uh, and then she will provide me with some uh, sort of coordinate, and I will attempt using my remote viewing skills, which, will I, which I will have learned in the, uh, the previous hour, I will attempt to, uh, remote view, uh, or identify that target remote viewing. Some say it's, uh, nothing less than the ability to transcend time and space. Hey, who wouldn't want to learn to master that skill? I know I would. All right. Uh, listen, last call to the phones. If you want to weigh in on the TV show, we'll give you that opportunity. If not, we'll move on. We'll get to Neil Arnold and, uh, uh, but before that, let me just uh, point out that the website for The Conspiracy Show television program is now up and online, and I encourage you to visit it. It is a work in progress. It's uh, www.theconspiracyshow.com. Pretty straightforward. www.theconspiracyshow.com. And uh, there you will find a list of uh, episodes for season one, also all of the guests that appear during season one, there'll be a brief uh, bio of them there and uh, their picture, also a link to their, uh, their website, etc., their books, etc., and we're also featuring on the website, theconspiracyshow.com, sort of a travelogue of all our travels uh, to England, Arizona. And um, you, can, uh, you can sort of follow along as we traveled the globe in search of these uh, terrific interviews. And there'll be some special uh, videos and so forth there as well for you. TheConspiracyShow.com. Hope you'll check it out. All right, let's say hello to Darlene in Niagara Falls. Good morning, Darlene. Welcome to AM740.
2: Good morning, Richard. Love the program, Vision. Enjoyed the one about the uh, Masons and some other stuff. I am curious, however about, I believe it was the Illuminati owning a great big hotel in Quebec where some very wealthy people were there, that there was a suicide att- uh, made by these wealthy people in that hotel, going back a number of years ago.
4: Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about that one, D- Darlene. Uh, you're saying the Masons own a huge hotel in Quebec? No, no,
2: not the Masons, the Illuminati. Oh, the
4: Illuminati. Oh, the Illuminati. Ah, well... Um. No, that's, uh, I mean, I, I guess I'd need more details uh, to know about that. But uh, it, listen, if there is, in fact, such a thing as the Illuminati, and that I'll be, I'll be frank with you, I, I really shy away from using that term personally
1: mm-hmm. uh,
4: simply because I think when you start imbuing uh, or, or attributing this elite group mm-hmm. with sort of occult a, a powers and abilities and uh, uh, which some maintain that the Illuminati have you tend to lose some people they tend to sort of roll their eyes in disbelief and then they don't really they sort of tune you out uh-huh. um, so I I rarely use the term Illuminati for that reason because it's so uh, well there's sort of, the other
2: terminology for the same thing
4: well there's there's a lot of different uh, terms you know yeah. se- various secret societies but for anyways
2: me, I wanted you to know that I, I really enjoy your program both on the radio and on vision and i'm curious is that you know it looks like two hands grasping around the circle
4: it's it's the 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 logo for uh... the television it's actually the world uh, being held in, in in someone's hand um, again, suggesting you know, I guess that uh, some some group or some individual is sort of attempting to to to, to control the world. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's the logo, uh, the conspiracy show, and then underneath it says "Reality Redefined." Right. What do you think of the logo? I like it. You do good. Good. Yeah. Well, Maybe.
2: you know, I think that you're really doing an excellent job, and. Uh, You know, getting better, like um, umpteen things that you have on your program, which is far better and, as I said, superior, than, you know, when you were limited when you were working at another station.
4: Ah, well, listen, Darlene, it's great. It's been a while since I heard from you, and it's great to hear from you again, so thank you for the kind words.
2: Pass your regards to your significant other, and how's the twins?
4: The twins are absolutely magnificent. They um, they are um, about four and a half now, mm-hmm. and uh, in in junior kindergarten.
7: Oh, and,
3: wonderful! And
4: uh, a constant source of entertainment. And uh, I think I'll keep them.
2: Oh, I well, I'll trade you <laughs> trade you with my Chizu for your two children. I'm just convincing.
4: You know what? Call me on a bad day, and maybe we'll. Right. You, <laughs> All right. Sean is in uh, the great state of Tennessee. Sean, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you?
8: Hello from the scenic city down south here.
4: Ah, and whereabouts in Tennessee?
8: Uh, Chattanooga, right near the Georgia state line, actually. We're looking out now. Oh, Chattanooga.
4: Now, are you up in the Smoky Mountains?
8: Um,. Probably not in a while, but, you know, that's still kind of distant from here relatively. It is.
4: Okay. I don't yeah. know my geography in Tennessee as well as I should. I, I passed through Tennessee actually, yeah, that's too many awesome. years ago, and I'd like to go back. Yeah. What's but on I, your mind, I, I
8: guess I was just calling to, to tell you this is the first time I've ever tuned into your show. I admire what I hear so far.
4: Oh, and how are you picking us up, on the radio or the well, internet?
8: Actually, yeah, believe it or not, you know, the signals come in pretty clear at night, you know, even from that far.
4: You know, uh, Zuma Radio, AM740, has one of the largest broadcast footprints of any station anywhere in North America. We're a 50,000 water.
8: We all are actually in Canada, aren't you?
4: We are. We're out of Toronto.
8: That's amazing. And, uh, well, you know, from what I noticed, it sounds like the material you cover on here is very much similar to maybe you have a lot of people you know of that are... Probably right in your, I guess, in your range of what you, you, you consider what you have there. Maybe you know of a lot of these other ones in America here, such as Alex Jones.
4: Alex, I've been on Alex's show, and he's been on mine a number of times. Yeah. Uh, yes, I know Alex, yeah.
8: Because he covers all this stuff about conspiracies. And another one, maybe you've heard of Tex Mars.
4: I've had Tex on my program as well. Text yeah, is a he's good got guy. Power of yeah.
8: prophecy down in Texas. And what he calls this is conspiracy science. He doesn't believe for one minute there's any theory about it.
4: Well, I I think until uh, uh, something is, you know, proven categorically, Mm -hmm. uh, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, the theory of evolution or you're talking about a a, a conspiracy, you have to call it a theory uh, Mm -hmm. or an allegation. And, of course, ultimately, you know, some of these things, there is never any resolution. Uh, You know, here we are, uh, you know, 50, almost 50 years 48 years after the Kennedy assassination, right. and we haven't, I think, you know, many of us feel uh, 100% certainty in our hearts and our minds that Oswald didn't act alone. But until we find that smoking gun, that document, what have you, it'll remain a theory. So, uh, and I know that the term conspiracy has been um, abused and misused, but I, I like to think that I'm here to take the word back because it is a legitimate Um, Area Yeah,
8: I mean, all they have to do do is look at people like the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, you know, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, trial law commission, all those folks. They're all in on it. They're the ones that pull the strings in all this.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, all it takes is uh, for a couple of people to, to, uh, you know, to go into a room and uh, to plot to do something, uh, primarily something illegal uh and and that happens all the time it happens inside governments uh you know people are constantly uh, uh, lying or, or uh, misleading uh, people, uh, breaking the law. Right. Maybe you're uh, familiar
8: with this new thing called Agenda 21 that they're trying to come up with.
4: Agenda 21. Yeah. Uh, is that to do with the United Nations?
8: Uh, absolutely. Yes. And, and they're using this sort of banner like they always come up with different little fronts, you know, uh, to cover up the real, ambi- the real uh, secret initiative. But th- they're using the eco-war thing, you know, with the, the environment and everything.
4: All right. Listen, Sean, uh, got to run. I got to yep. um, get to some other callers here, but terrific hearing from you from Chattanooga. Thank you. I hope you'll keep listening, and I hope you'll call me again. All right. All the best. All right, let's say to hello to uh, Louie in Toronto. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, Louie.
1: Yes, hello there. Welcome. Okay, yes, I'm calling to... Um, uh, I'm suggesting that you interview Sean Buckley. He's Sean a, Buckley. Yes, he's a lawyer who's... Uh, a, Uh, currently mounting a court challenge against the uh, passage of Bill C-36 into law. It's now law now, and he's going to be uh, appearing at the Total Health Show in Toronto on April 8th, 9th, and 10th. Um, I recommend that you or the audience uh, go to his lectures. He's going to be lecturing on both Saturday and Sunday, and he'll be on a panel discussion on Sunday
7: afternoon also.
4: Louis, thank you for for mentioning that, Uh, and thank you for the call. I just recalled, yes, I interviewed Sean Buckley a couple of years ago on another station. He's a lawyer who's read uh, those bills, uh, actually taken the time to go through them with a fine-tooth comb, and uh, made some... Uh, I, I, although I'm sure the bills have been altered somewhat since, uh, you know, uh, the last time I talked to him, but very concerned about these omnibus bills, which would give the federal government tremendous powers. I mean, it's so ridiculous that, uh, you know, certain foods would be categorized as a drug. Uh, I mean, under the law, you could be as ridiculous as it may sound, you know, be uh, be charged if you were to, um, uh, to uh, I don't know, to give your child, uh, you know, a clove of garlic or a blueberry. It's It's just Ridiculous. Uh, but uh, thank you for that. I, I, I should get Sean back on the program. Uh, listen, we've got um, uh, we've got to get a tour into our discussion with uh, with Neil Arnold. Dan, do we take a time out? Are you able to tell me or should uh, we get right to Neil here? He's right. okay, we're going to get uh, right to Neil. We, we really have to talk about uh, oh, werewolves. Let's lighten the mood, shall we? Neil Arnold is one of Britain's foremost folklore researchers, paranormal investigator, and he is the author of several books dealing with paranormal phenomena and strange mythical creatures, including Paranormal London, Monster, the A to Z of Zooform Phenomena, and Mystery Animals of the British Isles, Kent. And uh, he's just returned within the hour uh, from investigating a black leopard sighting. And believe me, uh, jungle cats have been seen across the U.K., for centuries but uh, we really wanted to delve into uh, werewolves uh, werewolf sightings in the UK first of all let's bring Neil on Neil great to talk to you again how are you
1: I'm good thanks for having me back on
4: well it's um, I know it's uh, it's uh, very early in the morning there you just got back from this uh, this hunt but let me just take you back to uh, February you and I hooked up uh, at your home in uh, in Rochester in Kent and uh, it, was, it was great meeting you. Uh, you took us to uh, Blue is it Bluebell Hill. That's right. Bluebell Hill is the... Uh, uh, a lot of paranormal activity uh, goes on there. Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the history of Bluebell Hill.
1: Um, it's just a very, very weird place. Um, there's lots of Roman mythology there. Uh, we've got a set of ancient stones there, which are actually said to be older than Stonehenge. Um, and there's been lots of reports over the year of the so-called uh, road apparition and also phantom hounds and other strange animals and, you know, sort of paranormal phenomena.
4: Now, uh, you and I clambered up that. That was a very cold, uh, muddy day. We clambered up uh, a, a footpath up to the top of Bluebell Hill and you took me to that strange, uh, it's kind of a miniature Stonehenge. And, but, but that area... Uh, seems to be a very popular place to see what you call these road apparitions or these these bipedal uh, uh, wolf-man like creatures. Why is Bluebell uh, Bluebell Hill so so special in that regard?
1: I'm not sure. I just think there's certain places across the world which attract more levels of higher strangeness and Bluebell Hill has always been one of those ancient mythical places. Um, Regarding the actual sort of road apparitions, there are several reasons as to why there's a a girl or two haunting the hill, such as road accidents. But as for these strange bipedal creatures, well, in the UK, we don't have things such as Bigfoot. So when something like that is seen, it makes it even weirder. But maybe sometimes it's down to some kind of demonic force, or maybe just down to the uh, eyewitness in question.
4: You've talked to a number of witnesses over the years, uh, people who have claimed, and these are credible uh, individuals, uh, but but individuals who have seen uh, werewolves. What do they describe?
1: Well, in general, it's sort of like the archetype sort of creature, similar to what's been seen in the United States, uh, something that's sort of, you know, bipedal, often always walking on two legs, never down on four. Um, this creature is covered in... Hair, sometimes seen with a muzzle, uh, usually sort of glowing red or yellowish eyes. Um, pretty much what you expect for most of these sort of werewolf type of sightings, really. How large? Generally something that sort of stands between sort of six and possibly eight feet. And of course, in the UK, we don't really have the sort of werewolf type of legends to an extent. So it makes it even weirder that we see these type of things over here.
4: And do these creatures uh, tend to be spectral, uh, or are they physical entities?
1: Well, I think everybody that sees them believes that they they seem to be physical, but of course they simply can't be physical. Um, So they've got to be some type of what we call supernatural type of entity, whether they sort of exist because of the ancient ground, I'm not sure, or possibly something to do with the human psyche. Maybe it takes a certain type of witness to see these strange manifestations.
4: You told me when we met a couple of months ago uh, about uh, a woman who called you to tell you about her werewolf sighting and she actually broke down and cried. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about uh, what she told you?
1: Yeah well basically because I, I sort of research Sightings of monsters full-time, basically, as a job. You always get people contacting you with strange stories, and, of course, the more you get, the more you realise there's something very weird going on. And this lady one night was basically driving. um, It was about 11 o'clock at night in quite a a busy area, but it was very dead, um, very dead quiet, and she was driving down this dark road, and she noticed this creature walk across the road in front of her, and it was about eight, nine foot tall, covered in hair but quite slim had very long arms almost like a strange gait to the extent where the the actual knees of the creature were coming up under its chin as it walked and she was so disturbed by this creature that she swerved off the road and crashed her car now every time i've spoken to this girl about this she just believed it was so horrifying and she often breaks down in tears she was very genuine as a witness and she doesn't understand why she saw this creature
4: What do you think is going on here? I mean, are you a believer?
1: I think that there are things out there which we we try to label as supernatural, paranormal, unexplained. But I think some of these things have been here a long, long time. But I often ask the question that do these things still appear if there is no one there to see them? And I believe the answer to that is no. So that creature needed something to trigger it off and that possibly depends on that certain individual which makes it even more complex because then it sort of suggests that it's to do with the human psyche but why we then project these type of things I don't know Uh,
4: Except Neil, haven't there been and haven't you documented uh, cases where there have been corroborating witnesses to the same
0: sighting?
1: Well exactly, there was a group of um, friends in 1992 around Bluebell Hill who were actually going to the local pub, walking through the woods when they were sort of uh, confronted by this eight-and-a-half-foot-tall creature with glowing red eyes, which they said was covered in hair. And you can't really explain that type of thing. But then again, I'm not sure. I think that these things can't be flesh and blood because we can't zoologically or biologically have this type of creature in the woods. And I also believe this goes for the United States, I think, that these things have to be some kind of supernatural type of creature. They can't be flesh and blood that lives in the woods. I think the woods is simply the place that we put them because that's the only place that we can kind of um, sort of fear them to an extent.
4: Is there a connection between these sightings and some sort of ancient ruin like the one that sits atop Bluebell Hill?
1: Possibly. When you consider that in the United States, they have reports around ancient burial grounds of these werewolf-type of creatures, and there has been reports, um, of course, around cornfields of sort of werewolf-type of creatures, which is quite interesting, because if you look in German folklore, they talk about the rye wolf, which is a strange werewolf-type of creature, seen around these you know vast fields of crops. But these things seem to go back so far beyond... Sort of, you know the recordings of humanity suggesting that we can't really understand them so we have to rely on old accounts and we tend to sort of relegate them to folklore but I believe that these things have always been here so maybe there is some type of connection to ancient burials and places of sacrifice
4: Has anyone ever felt physically threatened or in danger uh, in the presence of one of these uh, the werewolves?
1: Um. There's been a few bizarre reports all over the UK. There was a report, I believe it was in the 1970s, in Northumberland, in the north of England, which they called the Hexham Heads. And these strange stone heads were found in this back garden and they were put into the house. And as soon as these heads were put into the house, the actual people in the house started seeing these bizarre wolf-like creatures on the stairs. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the actual the British film uh, Dog Soldiers, which is a similar type of thing where these werewolves type of invade this sort of farmhouse in this the remote sort of Scottish Highlands. And again, they had this tall spindly look about them. And there's also the report from the 1970s when a lady who I've become good friends with reported that she was out with her, making a campfire with her boyfriend when she saw this creature very close by and she felt absolutely terrified and had to get away from this actual area. But I don't know of many cases where people have actually been attacked, um, but maybe it's more of a sort of a a mental type of uh, confrontation.
4: Is there any particular uh, time of year uh, when they're seen most frequently? I mean, is there any connection at all to the full moon, or is that simply Hollywood
1: legend? I think it's all Hollywood legend. Unfortunately, the same as vampires, I believe that werewolves have been transformed into these almost gothic um, dramatic images and, in, and they, of course they embed themselves in our culture and that's what we believe them to be but i believe there's far more sinister origins to these actual you know archetype figures that go back a long long time but things such as full moon garlic crucifixes and stakes, that type of thing are simply simply down to you know hollywood uh, creation basically
4: Neil Arnold is with me, live on the line from Rochester in Kent, England. And he's one of Britain's preeminent paranormal uh, researchers, the author of a number of books, including Paranormal London, Monster, The A to Z, or I should say The A to Z of zooform Phenomena, and Mystery Animals of the British Isles, Kent. Now, as I mentioned off the top, uh, Neil, you were out uh, tonight, just got back within the hour uh, investigating sightings of a black leopard uh, in down in your neck of the woods. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll discuss that. Back with more of the conspiracy show. My name is Richard Serrett.
3: In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
4: We're back with Neil Arnold. And, uh, Neil, give us a website if people want to uh, check out uh, um, your biography and uh, some of your books.
1: Uh, The main one is www.zooform.com blogspot.com and that basically covers my book monster the a to z of Zooform phenomena which is quite a unique sort of encyclopedia of bizarre creatures all over the world that have really been categorized and these are creatures that are not cryptozoological they're more kind of supernatural demonic but that have been seen all over the world and my other main website is www.kentbigcats.blogspot.com and www.beast.com of Com.
4: Well, let's talk about the big cats, and uh, as I said, you were out um, on an investigation tonight actually. Uh, tell me about that investigation.
1: Um, well, I've basically been called out. I get several sightings a week. I've been researching um, sightings of strange cat-like creatures in the UK countryside for more than 20 years, and I do it basically as a full-time job. I conduct lectures on it. Um, so I get many, many calls, and I was basically called out after a lady in a very remote area in Kent believed that this black leopard had actually been in her garden. And the bizarre thing is, this lady has got a very, very clear photo of this animal. Um, strangely, the the animal has been coming in her very small back garden quite a lot. But once I went to the area, I realised it was completely surrounded by fields and woods it was a perfect area but what's also turned up now is the fact that this animal has also got three cubs and these have also been photographed as well so at the moment it's an ongoing sort of investigation and hopefully we're going to get some more photos um but of course people often talk about how these animals are never filmed um, but i've got quite a lot of photographs but this is one of the best ones i've actually seen and this black leopard is basically leaning up a fence literally about two feet away from the lady's bedroom window. And she said that several times she's laid there at night and this big black cat has been in her garden. So it was quite an eerie sort of night. I actually spent about around six, seven hours in this lady's sort of garden and in the surrounding fields.
4: So what do you do, just just sit there shivering, waiting for something to happen?
1: Um, not really. Um, it's important to eliminate all this sort of... Um, natural possibilities you know you've got to look at you know feral cats and dogs and things like that it's interesting to look in an area to work out if there's a food source of course rabbit pheasants pigeons foxes and um, there's also sheep in the area there's also a stream in the area which suggests this animal can drink and also use this stream to navigate also there's a railway line in the area which a cat would use to navigate alongside And also as well, if this animal has got cubs, which appear to be about five months old, then of course it may be sticking in an area for about, you know, five or six months because of course it needs to feed and it doesn't want to take its young too far. And of course the young do need to stay with the mother until eventually they reach around 18 months and then they go off on their own. So sometimes it's a case of having to sit there patiently. But this one was okay because as it started to get very, very cold, we was allowed to sort of sit in the lady's actual bedroom and look out into the garden. But we didn't actually see anything, but I do believe that we will actually get something else on the film. But like I say, what the lady's got on the film is very impressive.
4: Just to be clear here, we're not talking about um, just some large house cat. You're talking about an actual jungle cat. Uh, it's not supposed to be in England, uh, but they've been seen for centuries, dating back probably to Roman times perhaps. Is that right?
1: Well, certainly, when you look into the actual folklore of it all, this has been going on all over the the UK and, in fact, the rest of the world for a long, long time. Um, Certainly in the UK, in the 1960s and 70s, people did have these type of animals as pets, but they only live until they're about 12 or 13 years of age. So anything released in the 70s would have died. But, of course, these animals could well have bred. If you've got a leopard or a cougar cub, and you let it go in the wild in the UK, it would certainly be able to live very easily. But of course there were reports dating back to the Victorian times when there was travelling menageries. So people have always kept these sort of cats, but certainly in the 60s and 70s it was quite common to keep, you know, sort of a large cat as a cub, a cute and cuddly cub, and very easy to let one go, because nowadays you can't really keep these animals but we seem to have an abundant population of of black leopard, puma, lynx and also smaller cats which would be a jungle cat but also as well this is happening in Australia and also the United States where there are also black leopard reports as well
4: Why, um, when it comes to the UK, why is it primarily the black panther? Why don't you see the spotted leopard or, or, or tigers? Why the black panther?
1: Well basically if somebody did have a lion or a tiger, um, people seem to forget that a lion would seek a pride and they both seek large prey. If you had a tiger walking across the field, it would be very easy to spot cause it's a huge cat. Um, the puma is a very elusive animal and you'd very rarely see it. It's very rarely seen in the United States, of course, where it's known as the shadow cat and the ghost cat. The black leopard is interesting because, of course, a black leopard is quite a, a suave and sexy animal to keep as a pet. It's a very symbolic, iconic cat. Now, of course, people get confused because they talk about panthers, but a panther, of course, is not a species of cat. It's simply a word to describe the black leopard. But people often don't realise leopards can, in fact, be black. They can be very dark due to a skin pigment known as melanin. And you can see the actual rosette pattern underneath the coat. But if you've got a black male and female leopard, they will only produce black offspring due to the recessive gene. And I believe that this strain is simply effective to the extent where we're only seeing black leopards. I've never received a report in my neck of the woods of a normal leopard, but I'm pretty sure that there may be a few in other parts of the UK, but it's only black leopards in in where I sort of do my research.
4: And um, has anyone ever been attacked?
1: Um, There has been one or two cases. This is the big concern I've got. Because I do this full-time, I simply make the public aware these animals exist because the authorities just aren't interested. Um, Maybe this is simply because it's not a bizarre conspiracy. I just think the authorities wouldn't be able to afford to monitor these animals or exterminate everyone. But if a child is attacked then we've got a big problem. Now a couple of years ago a guy in Kent did actually accidentally approach a lynx one evening which was eating a rabbit and he thought it was a fox and this animal turned around and slashed him across the hand. Now if that was a child I'm sure lots of newspapers and police would turn up and create a bit of a witch hunt. And that is the concern I've got, which is why I believe it's about time these animals were brought away from folklore and monitored officially. But at the moment, it's just literally me out there on my own, trying to make the public aware and collating the evidence.
0: Well,
4: uh, Neil, you and I discussed this when I was uh, was uh, in Kent with you Uh I think the reason that the government will not acknowledge the existence of these exotic big cats roaming around the UK is uh, it comes down to, uh, to insurance and money. It's the same reason here in Ontario in Canada, the rumors that the eastern cougar, a large predatory cat, the rumors that it has returned after about 100 years uh, of virtual extinction, If the government acknowledges they're back, then they're on the hook for compensation to farmers if they lose livestock.
1: That's right. It's the same with people losing domestic cats as well. But of course it would cost the authorities money, like I say, to exterminate everyone, or certainly to go out and try and track these animals. It'd be great if they could track them and prove to people they don't attack humans. But in the UK we've got this bizarre sort of um, perception of wild animals. You know, they want to reintroduce the lynx back over here to control the deer. But we moan about rats and foxes over here, and they're quite tiny compared to parts of the US and Canada where you've got bears, coyotes. You know, in England we would freak out when you know if we had these type of animals, and yet they want to bring back the wolf, they want to bring back the wild boar. We've also got wallabies in the countryside, so I think to admit that there's leopards and puma may just be too much for people to take.
4: You've you've personally have have caught sight of these black panthers, have you not?
1: That's right. In 2000, I saw a black leopard twice, and then in 2008, I saw one um, in roughly the same area, but I believe this is a different black leopard. And a couple of years ago, I also managed to see a lynx which was caught on film. So I've been very lucky, and I feel it's a privilege to see these type of animals, but my big concern is that that they are always lumped alongside UFOs, ghosts, when it's quite clear they're simply flesh and blood animals that are thriving quite sort of um, healthily in the the local countryside.
4: Well, for you personally, one individual to have seen, not one, but two panthers, and you say you're getting reports almost weekly, it sounds to me... That there must be a substantial breeding population in the UK if if they're being seen that often. How many, how many black panthers, for example, do you think there might be in the UK?
1: Um, I don't think there's as many as people think because, of course, although the UK seems quite big, um, it's not gigantic, and, and and an animal can exist in somewhere like Kent and then cross cross counties into sort of Sussex, Surrey, the outskirts of London. But where I've done the research for so long and and really bombarded the local newspapers, some nights I'll get a report from one end of Kent and another one from the outskirts of London, so it's clearly not the same cat. I've had reports of black leopards with cubs, reports of puma with cubs, and reports of lynx with kittens. So I think there are small, viable populations in remote pockets where the... And what people don't realise, of course, is these animals are very, very elusive and they're only really seen when just, say, crossing a field or crossing a road or appearing to somebody walking their dog or a fisherman. But there's not hundreds of them. But certainly almost every county in the UK would have at least one or two of these animals. But, of course, we've still got forest and woodland left. You know, we've not got a a huge area, but we've still got lots of green areas where an animal can hide, lots of rural areas. And I think we're a little bit naive as to how elusive these animals really are
4: and there's lots of priates as well. Uh, Neil, uh, I should point out uh, that next Friday, that'll be April 1st across Canada, the uh, the conspiracy show, the television program will uh, will be dealing about the Highgate vampire uh, story and uh, you're in that episode. We came out to uh, Rochester to speak to you about that and also about werewolves which will be an episode uh, airing in in season 2. Uh, let me just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the Highgate Vampire case, uh, because as you know, we um, uh, we also interviewed uh, the Bishop uh, Manchester and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a U.S. Uh, based paranormal researcher. Although you and I talked about it for the the TV show, and and people will again be able to see that uh, next Friday at uh, 11 p.m. on Vision TV. Your your thoughts on on that celebrated. Uh, uh, vampire case back in 1970?
1: Well, I think it, um, it was a very atmospheric, gothic time to an extent, the swinging sort of late 60s and early 70s. People seeing this tall, dark, red-eyed figure behind the sort of north gate of the Western Cemetery in high gate in London, a very dilapidated, sort of eerie, old cemetery. Um, but I believe that there was no vampire i simply believe that the highgate vampire like many sort of um sort of many sort of legends whether it's mothman the jersey devil the chupacabra i believe these things are some sum of many parts and i believe it's down to eyewitness perception and that once that something has been given a label it almost sort of becomes real so people start calling it the highgate vampire but I believe it was simply like a malevolent entity that was haunting sort of the cemetery. There's been reports even over the last few years and it mainly seems to be of a a figure in black which is said to roam, roam a ley line throughout the village from the gatehouse pub through Highgate Wood. I do not believe it was a vampire in any you know way, shape or form. I just believe that the, the newspapers and the other so-called researchers at the time created this type of thing and of course at the time it was hysterical for just a f- you know a few months a couple of years and then gradually it just faded into obscurity and now it exists in folklore and people regurgitate the same old information thinking it was a vampire when I don't believe it was.
4: But you don't rule out something supernatural.
1: Um well, again, I think we need to. Everybody's always keen to put a label on it. I think it could have been just a routine haunting. There were lots of alleged Satanists in the cemetery at the time. There was grave desecration, but there was also a lot of trespassers, lots of arrests at the time as well, lots of media intrusion. And I'm of the opinion that if people start to believe in something enough, it can actually start to happen. And this is why I did my monster, uh, the A to of Zoo form because a zoo form is basically something that is a figure apparition of demonic sort of quality that can appear in sort of type of animal form with animal characteristics simply because there are things out there which are seen which are almost the product of hysteria and they become manifestations and i just think that sometimes even if some nothing has been seen you can almost put a a report out into the paper and there's always somebody that will ring you up and say they've seen it and I just think that the Highgate vampire case snowballed out of control it became very political very petty and of course in the end I think that the inadequate investigations kind of clouded the real so-called ghost story behind it all
4: Now you're uh, in in Rochester and uh, you and I walked up to the, uh, the castle there is it the Rochester Castle? Is that what it's That's called? That's right scene of one of the most bloodiest battles in, in in British history from what I remember reading on the plaque there mm. and uh, is, do you have any uh, any uh, any stories attached to the uh, the Rochester castle that you could share with my my listeners
1: well uh, Rochester where I live is is an amazing place it's a, it's a former city and now a town which has a, a great gothic cathedral and castle and of course it's real association is with the great author Charles Dickens, whose work is known all over the world and basically this type of place has got the cobbled high streets, um, very old buildings that date back to sort of the 1100s, there's reports of ghostly monks, we've got very old public houses with tunnels underneath which stretch across sort of the street to the actual uh, castle. And, of course, lots of people, like you say, there's been sieges upon the castle in the past. Lots of people have died, and there's a ghost story of a lady in white which has been around for sort of several hundred years. But there's also a report of a black phantom monk said to actually appear in the castle. And, interestingly, I I did a book called Haunted Rochester, which is actually out next month, and we actually did manage to get a photo of this black monk, which was quite bizarre because we were just in the actual chapel of the castle one night taking some photos and noticed there's this sort of half a monk standing in front of us with a black habit on and there was nothing there when we took the photo at the time. But Rochester is just a very, very old place and you'd expect these old places to harbour lots of spiritual energy and it seems that Rochester does and there are literally hundreds of ghost stories from just a very small area.
4: Were you telling me that uh, you mentioned Dickens, one of my favorites, of course, who who incidentally spent a little bit of time here in Toronto uh, mm. as a young man. Um, but were you telling me that it was his wish, uh, he was fascinated with Rochester. Uh, he wanted to be buried uh, on the grounds of the Rochester Castle. Is that true?
1: That's right. Um, he wanted, he spent a lot of time around there. and A lot of his books were actually based on, on Rochester. Um, and he actually wanted to be buried um, in the actual, the moat of the castle. Now, the moat has never had any water in it. But bizarrely, after he did, he did die, they went against his wishes and he was interred at Westminster Abbey, which is a bit of a shame. But interestingly, people do report that there is a ghost of possibly Charles Dickens said to roam the high Street. But I believe this could be simply down to legend. That if anybody does see a shadowy figure, I believe it's like they sort of want it to be Charles Dickens to an extent. But certainly Charles Dickens, you know, spent a lot of his time along Rochester.
4: Well, it, it, I remember when you were telling me this, and um, you, you were in the car with us, and we were driving from your place up to the Rochester Castle. And uh, one of the streets on the way there, I caught a glimpse of it over my, uh, my left shoulder. And I have seen the 1951 uh, Alistair Sim version of, of A Christmas Carol probably over 100 times. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I swear I know every frame of that film. As we're driving to Rochester Castle, I, I mentioned this to you at the time, I saw this building on the left-hand side, the archway. I was, as soon as I saw it, I said to myself, that's the location of the final scene uh, where where uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is walking under this pass under this archway, and he sees a young Tiny Tim who is now uh, no longer walking in crutches. He's been healed. He runs up to Alister Sim, and then you hear the narrator saying, "And Ebenezer Scrooge was a, a good a master as the old town ever knew." And they roll the credits. And uh, ever since I got back from uh, England, I've been I've been scouring the internet to see if I can find out whether they actually. Shot any of that movie in Rochester? Do you, do you know if they did?
1: No, I'd certainly. Again, I'm going to try and I'm going to get. A, um, I've got a friend who's got a copy of the film, so I'm going to have to borrow it, and just so I can have a look at it. Uh, maybe it will say on the end of the film. But I've I've got no recollection. It's been quite a long time since I've actually seen that film. But I'd like to see it again because I believe that Rochester has certainly got that that right feel to it. You could really sort of make a good. Scrooge along that type of place. So you never know. And that old archway is actually called Cemetery Gate. And it's said to be an old um uh, legend of a phantom coach and horses there. And they it's got several names for it. Church's Gate as well. So so maybe it was where they actually filmed it.
4: Interesting. All right. Well, if you do uh, find out, please let me know. In the meantime, hey, Neil, it's a great pleasure uh talking to you. It was a it was just Tremendous uh, getting over there and meeting you in person, and I appreciate you showing me and the crew around Rochester. I'm only sorry that we couldn't hang around longer and uh, checked out one of the locals for a pint.
1: Well, we could have been spoke about the Phantom Monks. Maybe we can do it another time.
4: We certainly will, and um, in the meantime, again, we'll um, look forward to uh, your new book coming out on, uh, is it Paranormal Rochester?
1: Um, I've got about five coming out. I've got Haunted Rochester is out next month and also Mystery Animals of the British Isles, London, which should be quite interesting. It's probably the best book I've written. And also I've done a few other local ones and eventually I'm going to be writing a book, well, I've mostly finished it, about cryptozoology in the movies. So that would be something for children and adults alike.
4: Well, uh, terrific. And and here's hoping that we can uh, connect uh, during, is it Weird Weekend down in Devon?
1: That's right. It's a very, very strange weekend full of speakers um, and lots of monsters.
4: And that's in uh, August, I believe.
1: I think it's something like the 18th to the 21st. um, And that's like a, a couple of days where people sort of come and give talks and exhibitions and it draws a good crowd as well and people sort of exhibit lots of strange and weird items. And it's mainly cryptozoological, but you get people there talking about ghosts and UFOs as well.
4: Well, we're tr- really uh, going to try and get over there to uh, uh, to film some more episodes of The Conspiracy Show. Neil, thank you for this.
1: Thank you for having me on.
4: All right, bye-bye. Bye. That's it for me. Thanks to Neil Arnold for checking in from Kent in England. Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend, and of course James Corbett, editor of The Corbett Report. It was uh, great to hear from him from Japan. Also, thanks to producer Dan Ellison, Gene Stevens, George Grant, and of course Moses Neimer. We'll talk to you next week. I'll welcome Dr. Judy Wood to the program to discuss her riveting new book, Where Did the Towers Go?, and her theory that a directed energy weapon was used to bring down the World Trade Center Towers. We'll also conduct a special remote viewing experiment live on the air. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops, move
3: over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air